0: Hey guys, I hope you're doing great today and I can't wait to bring you the show. But before I do, I just want to make a quick request. If you're listening to the show and you're getting good value and you're enjoying the content and you feel that it's valuable, if you could just take a second and go and give me a rating and review in whatever platform you listen, whether it be Apple or Google or uh, Spotify, whatever it is, just go and give me a rating and review. That would be very appreciated. All right, guys, let's dive in.
1: Buying a a million dollar property, you know, putting a 20% down payment on that, that's going to be very hard to continue to scale from there.
0: You're listening to the Just Start Real Estate Podcast. If you're serious about your real estate investing business and need real answers, you are in the right place. And now, your host, Mike Simmons. All right. Thank you for joining me on the show today. I appreciate it. Thank you for coming back. If you've been here before, if you've never heard the show before, welcome to the show. Love having you here, and I'm excited to uh, this to be your first one because this is going to be a lot of fun, and it's something that uh, I think a lot of us are not thinking about or doing, but it's available to all of us. So it's going to be a good one, guys. I have on the show today a guy who has created a personal real estate portfolio of cash flowing almost. 11,000. And as we talked in the show today, it's actually now going to be over $13,000 per month through single family home investing in California while working a busy pharmaceutical job. Real estate investing is going to allow this investor to retire at the age of 31 with a six figure income. He was recently featured on the Bigger Pockets Rookie Podcast, and his name is Ryan Chaw. And I had him on the show. We had a great conversation. I really cleared up, or cleared up, I should say, a lot of the questions that I had about this type of investing. Uh, and frankly, I don't think enough people are talking about it. It's very doable, and. There's so much more cash flow available with this model. But I think it scares people because you say college kids and renting and people freak out and think that you know it's just going to be a big disaster. And that was one of the first things I asked him. How does this not turn into a disaster basically? And he had a great answer. So I'm excited, guys. Without any further delay, I give you Ryan Shaw. Hey, Ryan. Thanks for doing this, man. Thanks for being on Just Start Real Estate. Uh, welcome to the show. I appreciate it. Hey, thank you, Mike. I'm glad to be on the show. Absolutely. Uh, I, I think we found you or we heard about you first because uh, you were in the Bigger Pockets Rookie Podcast. Uh, mm-hmm. I got to know your story a little bit and took kind of a look into your world and saw what you were up to. And I thought this would be a fun one. This would be a fun interview. It'd be it's a fun kind of a uh, unique way that you're going about this real estate uh, investing adventure, and uh, I think it'd be fun to share with the audience and something new for them to consider when they're you know kind of getting started, or even if they're looking to to pivot or, or, or branch off from what they've been doing. So uh, it's gonna be a lot of fun. But for those of us on this call who maybe don't know about you and had, didn't hear you on Bigger Pockets and didn't look into your you know your your uh, story. Mm-hmm. Give us a little background of who you are, uh, maybe what you did before real estate and how Mm -hmm. you got into real estate.
1: Yeah. So actually I was inspired to get into real estate from my grandpa. He bought a couple properties from the San Francisco Bay area. Okay. And as we all know, uh, Silicon Valley hit and those prices skyrocketed, rents went up as well. And he was able to cover all of his living expenses with the rental income and retire early. Not nice. only that, he was able to help cover some of my college tuition and that of my brother's as well. So I realized that real estate's one of the best ways to create generational wealth, if not the best way. Uh, So I wanted to get in as soon as possible. I actually graduated with my pharmacy degree in 2015. And I worked two jobs, a lot of overtime, six days, seven days a week. Uh, I did retail and hospital to save up for like all that capital to put myself in a position to buy as much real estate as possible, as early as possible, because real estate is really a time game, right? You plant your seeds and then let them grow into trees, as you guys all know already. Uh, So I bought my first property in 20. 16, I was actually copying a model that my friend was doing. Uh, it's basically rent by the room in local college towns. And that allowed me to double my cash flow and double my rental income um, because I rent out per the bedroom, add those extra bedrooms, and then charge about $600 to $700 per bedroom. So some of my properties, most of my properties make around $2,500 to $3,100 or $3,200 of rental income per single family home. So I bought one property each year by reinvesting the cash flow. I took out something called a HELOC. We can go over that later. And then I invested my W-2 income into conventional mortgages to buy each property, one property a year. Now I have four properties about to buy my fifth and once we finish on the fifth property I'll be making about thirteen thousand nine hundred and ten dollars in rental income
0: I like how you say about thirteen thousand nine hundred and ten <laughs> that's not an about that's, number thirteen thousand nine hundred yeah. or thirteen you know 14 thousand <laughs> isn't about that's funny um, good point uh, all right so tons of questions. Number one, mm-hmm. you're, you you have your pharmacy degree. You're a pharmacist. That obviously you're a smart person. So that that you know that's awesome. That we know that. Um, so in He's, your your grandfather, you said bought a, bought Russell Rentals, and that's how he was able to retire early. So you you saw exactly. that in the family, which is great. I want to say as someone who has kids that are about your age uh, or close <laughs> to it um i love hearing that you were like i want to buy as much real estate as possible as soon as possible because it's a no it's a time thing right you know mm-hmm. the time value of money and you know how that all works so um I, I could not agree more and it makes me super stoked uh your parents your grandparents certainly did something right getting instilling that into you that that, that was important but i gotta mm-hmm. tell you the biggest question i have when i was like hearing your story and and like kind of researching Hiring, okay, from a from a spreadsheet standpoint, I a hundred percent get why uh renting out to college students by the room. It's sort of like it's almost like the reverse of like a chop shop. Like you're you're, you're renting your your <laughs> a place out in parts to make it because the sum of the parts are more than just doing it all as one big rental. I get that. Yes. But the debauchery that I would be concerned about happening in a rental full of college kids that are renting by the room that may or may not know each other, that sounds like a ticking time bomb to me. Explain to me how that is not a complete and utter nightmare having this situation. so right now
1: I actually have 18 tenants and I'm able to self-manage this while working a full-time job so that's already a testament to how well this system could work if you set it up correctly mm-hmm. um, it's a lot about like the systems and processes you put in place but also about what type of tenant you choose to bring in so usually I look for high quality tenants like professional students third or fourth year students who are more mature they're you know professional in their interactions with me so I can tell that they will probably take on some responsibility around the house. They're not the type that'll throw a wild college party. And if one of the other roommates wanted to like throw a crazy party, they would probably say, no, dude, I got to, you know, study for my midterms and finals. So we can't have that. <clears throat> okay. So a lot of it is that, but uh, okay. doing the screening, yeah. but then a lot of it again is also just, um, you know, putting the systems in place so that when something comes up, uh, you follow that process, and then it makes everything a lot easier for you. In fact, I spend less than an hour a week self-managing my properties at this point.
0: Okay, um, so some some questions here. I, I, I'm sure that there. I'm and I I'm a landlord, but I have I have a management company that handles this. so I don't do the like background checks and like you know looking at people's applications and stuff. But mm-hmm. I'm sure that there are laws specifically saying that you can't profile when you're when you're renting, right? But in a way you're looking for a certain type of renter. How do you do that? What if somebody comes to you and they're not professional sounding and but maybe they have good credit or they have a good rental background when they're a first year student. I don't know, it's probably in things that don't actually happen, but like how, how do you how do you just take the best of the best? How does that even happen?
1: Yeah, so you're right, you can't just totally profile them as in you can't follow, you have to follow the the discrimination law. So you can't discriminate based off of race, sex, uh, national origin, all that type of stuff. But you can discriminate based off of like their interactions with you. Mm -hmm. And I actually use something called the prime method, which I'll go ahead and explain real quickly. Yeah, let's do it. um, Define high quality tenants. So P stands for placement of ads. Uh, When I originally started, I actually placed a sign on the lawn saying for rent" with my cell phone number. That was the worst idea I ever had (laughs) because I would get these like (laughs) bunch of people calling me, all of them want to rent out the whole house. And then they're wondering, why am I charging so much for the whole house? And I'm like, well, it's rent by the bedroom. That's why. Right. But none of them were, you know, college students or I was just getting the wrong people. Yeah. Uh, Putting up ads basically where your target tenants aren't hanging out. is like fishing in an empty pool. Mm -hmm. You want to fish in the right pond. So you have to figure out where do they hang out? Maybe it's like campus bulletin boards on campus, or maybe it's like an email list server that maybe someone could send out an email to everyone. Uh, maybe it's like off-campus housing um, on the school website, uh, Facebook groups, Craigslist. So you really have to figure out where you want to place your ads okay. so that the people who contact you are all going to be your target market. Perfect. And for me, it's um, college students. Okay. Right? So I want to just say that, think, does
0: solve, that does that yeah. does solve the problem of how do you only get the best of the best you just put yourself in front of the people that you want to rent to, not just the entire world at large. Okay. Gotcha. Exactly. Yeah. So
1: it already kind of narrows our market. Um, The next thing you want to do is actually review their social media whenever possible. So I do look at their Facebook profiles. I look for things like drugs, alcohol, smoking, rave pictures, and I try to find people who are more serious about their studies. um, and don't look like the party type type of tenant. Um, That brings me to the next part, which is identifying the type of tenant. So is this guy, when they're communicating with you, are they difficult to communicate? Do they seem to get angry very easily? Are they asking for cheaper rent? Are they very needy? They're asking for things before they even sign a lease. Um, That kind of... Gives you, you have to use your intuition and your gut feeling on that one. Um, The next one is measuring responsiveness. Usually, the more responsive they are in terms of like getting their paperwork back to you quickly, um, you know, answering all your questions and all that, the more responsible they're going to be. So, I kind of measure like how professional are they and how quick are they in getting back to me on on certain things when I need something from them, like paperwork. And then the E, the final step is ensuring proof of income. Usually it's actually the parents paying the rent. So what's great about this is you never get unpaid rent because what parent is going to want to stop paying rent and have their child evicted from the place they're staying at in college, right? Yeah. So I usually get like the parents uh, either pay stubs or bank statements and then FICO score, just like a screenshot of it um, to make sure that rent can be afforded. The student can also provide student loan documents if they're going to be using their student loans to pay for their room and board, mm. or they can provide like financial aid documents. So, what's really great about this market is the student tenant has so many ways to basically pay for the rent. Yeah. That's and it's also a lot cheaper than on campus housing. So, it saves them a lot of money.
0: Yeah. I, totally. I totally agree with that. Um, so, I guess my, my, my question, oh, I know, I was trying to think, I had a great question. It, it's not that great, but I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs> Can you say yeah. which campus you're around or what, 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 what college are we talking about?
1: Yeah, so I invest in Stockton, California, near my pharmacy school, where I went to pharmacy school. Okay. Uh, but I've seen people do this all over the place. Like um, one of my uh, students, I'm teaching him the same method. He's investing there, John Hopkins, another near Purdue. Um, so we do actually target high quality colleges as well. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be an Ivy League college, but it is a college that's hard to get into. Yeah. Meaning you're going to end up with a lot of people from mm. out of state because people come from all all over the world, right. To go to John Hopkins, for instance. Mm -hmm. So because of all that, out of state, you know, demand, you're, there's a lot of demand for off campus housing because those people don't live in that area. So that's a, another thing I focus on is definitely targeting those types of colleges.
0: Okay. So you're not, you're not trying to get near the real like local, you know, kind of like this is where everyone goes if they can't get into John Hopkins kind of a thing. You're going <laughs> for like harder to get into schools. But that would, to me, exactly. that means, because <clears throat> when it comes to rentals, even the way you're doing it, there is, you know there is a, a a cost factor. Like there's an ROI that is difficult to hit, to hit if you're just buying million dollar houses, right? So if you're mm-hmm. in this areas, are how do you do you have like a rule of thumb when it comes to like how much you will spend because you know how much you can probably make per room in in general. So is there like a, a how do you evaluate a property? I was gonna I'm not gonna put words in your mouth. How do you evaluate oh, yeah. a property? Uh, I mean, there's definitely a lot of things that you
1: want to look at other than just price. But price is a big factor because if you're not making enough return on investment, then it just doesn't make sense for you. So, like you said, buying a, a million dollar property, you know, putting a 20% down payment on that, that's going to be very hard to continue to scale from there. Yeah. But I've had people who do invest in markets that are expensive and use this strategy because they can make a good rent to price ratio. Meaning like if you bought a million dollar property, but you have like eight bedrooms and you can rent them out for 1200 a piece, then you're still meeting like the 1% rule. Essentially, the 1% rule means your rental income is 1% of the total cost of the property. So if you can meet that rule, you're generally speaking doing pretty well.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. How did you know, how did you determine what to charge per room cuz that's that's I don't know if that's unusual in college town mm-hmm. areas or if you experienced it when you were in college but I, I I wouldn't know and I think a lot of my listeners would have no idea we know how to figure out a house because a house you can just look at the comps right how do you yeah, know per room area. how do you do that yeah, so per room you
1: can't do it the same way as you said, like you can't use Zillow or Rentometer to find the per bedroom rent. What you do instead is either go to Craigslist rooms for rent or mm. Facebook groups, housing Facebook groups, which will tell you how much people are generally offering their place for. And it could range from quite a bit. It could be just 500 to 700, which is the usual range. But other places like like the Bay Area, Southern California and there um. Oh, the pharmacy school, uh, USC, for instance, they usually go for like $1,200 per bedroom. So yeah. you definitely need to do your research ahead of time to determine what you can be getting in that area.
0: Yeah, completely. Is there the is there something you look for, or let's put it this way, when you buy a house for this purpose, are there updates or upgrades that you make specifically because they affect the rent? Like this is probably extreme and you probably don't do it, but like adding a bathroom to every room seems like it would be awesome. You know, it's unusual. It's a not it's usually even probably possible, but is there anything yeah. you do to upgrade or add on to a place to make it like, this is going to completely change, change everything for me?
1: Yeah. In terms of profits, always adding those bedrooms, uh, adding bathrooms is usually quite expensive. That yeah. could be, 10,000, 20,000, 30,000, depending on, you know, what the piping is, structure is. And but you do add right? bedrooms, though, you're saying? I do add bedrooms, yeah. Okay. So the best ratio is to at least keep three people per bathroom to share one bathroom. So if one of the bathrooms is private, that is a bit of an issue if you have pe- like five people at the house. Yeah. But if you had like, for example, like six people at the house and then two shared bathrooms, then that would still meet that ratio, that three to one ratio. So I try to add as many bedrooms as possible because each bedroom I can add is a huge jump in cash flow. That's like $600 a month, which is $7,000 per year. But in terms of making it like comfortable for students, a lot of things I include Uh, amenities I include of course is like the bed a desk to study in each room and then a chair a nightstand and some sort of closet Uh, I do also include like kitchenware and all that so basically it's pretty much move-in ready Mm. Um, there's a couple things that students look for obviously when they want a comfortable place to stay one is security so if it's very close to campus uh, there's maybe campus police patrolling the area that's a going to be a great location. Um, Just being within walking distance, if possible, like five minute walking distance. Mm. There are some colleges that are a little bit further away from other neighborhoods, like maybe they have a freeway right, right next to them or maybe a river or something like that. In that case, it's okay to be like a five-minute drive away. But okay. I try to get as close to the campus as possible because the closer I am, the more premium I could charge in the rents. Because people, generally speaking, like people when they wake up for the 8, o- 8 a.m. classes, they want to you know be as close as possible so they don't have to wake yeah. up super early. That's how college kids think, right? <laughs> totally. Um, but I do provide all that other stuff. And then also plenty of parking as well right like if you have four people or five people to a house they need enough space for a couple cars
0: yeah so uh, do you find that the, the the pool of houses or the the inventory right now inventory is tough all over but forget about mm-hmm. like the the current craziness we're in right now but in general since you started doing this do you find inventory to be a problem because you're trying to get real close to campus i would imagine there's limited amount of houses going up for sale like because it's prime location, how, how do you navigate that the the, the inventory issue?
1: Yeah, exactly. So um, there will be a little bit less houses near the campus. So sometimes it's okay to go a little bit further. But what I do is I have my real estate agent give me specifically specific listings for um, what I'm looking for. So I'm looking usually for like a three bed two bath, so I can add that 4 for fifth. Uh, bedroom and and still get it for a cheap price because I get it as a three bed. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm looking for a course within five minute walk. So if anything pops up with that criteria, even off market listings, you have to realize these real estate agents, they do their own advertising and marketing. So they, basically ask buyers out there, hey, are you thinking of selling your house? If so, sure. I'm here to help you, right? Yep. So sometimes you can get an off-market listing. In fact, I ended up getting my fifth property I'm in escrow right now. I got it off-market. I got it for $340,000 and it appraised for $360,000. So, how, like so you Red got that Finn, Z estimate. They say it's more like three eighty, yeah, three ninety in this market, because people are paying like so crazy, like 50,000, a hundred thousand dollars over asking they're paying cash, but I was able to get it off market and, you know, get in and be very close to campus because I established that network. My real estate agent knows I'm able to close on a house because I closed mm-hmm. like four other houses with him. Right. Yeah. So it's a lot about that relationship.
0: Yeah, totally. So that, so I have another two questions. I guess the off market stuff in this market. I guess you know I buy and sell stuff off market all the time. So I know that there's a million reasons why people would do it. But in this case, and in the market we're in, and the market you happen like geographic market you're in, and in the real estate market the whole country's in. Why would anybody sell it to you off market before letting people just? you know, feeding frenzy and bid this thing off, you know, uh, uh, to the roof? Like, why would they, why would they do that? It's the
1: relationship, honestly. I actually, I would actually cut him a check after each uh, house I purchased. Um, Even though that it's the seller's, you know, the the job to pay the commission, I still would cut him a check as a thank you. And then, yeah, he just, he knows exactly what I'm looking for. He knows like, this Mm -hmm. is like a shoe in, you know, he's going to close, and he kind of also wants to, you know, do me a favor as well. Yeah. So he had the seller sign a contract saying basically that he'll sell to within the same real estate company to anyone who's bought from that real estate company first before putting it onto the MLS wow. market. Wow. Okay. Yeah.
0: And I'm looking here at the notes of, of things that I that I wanted to talk to you about. Um and it looks like you, and I'm asking you this for a very selfish reason, um, <laughs> you, you, it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you use the equity in one of your houses, maybe the first house, to get a HELOC to put down a down payment on the fourth house. Um, so you got a HELOC against an investment property. Yeah. Is that a local bank kind of a kind of a play? Is it a national bank? How did you do that? I'm asking because I'm looking to do the same thing and I'm I'm struggling to find somebody, a bank or a blending institution that would be willing to do that.
1: Oh yeah, I use a national bank. Right now, um uh, my interest rate on the HELOC is about four point seven percent. So it's pretty low because the federal prime rate is low. It's based off of that. Uh, but I did use a national bank. I used Union Bank. Okay. Um, they were offering discounts at the time I did it. Um, but then they said afterwards that, you know, because it's an investment property, unfortunately, we can't add that discount. So, I mean, I would definitely search around. Um, usually it takes like, 30 days or 45 days to pull out a HELOC, mm-hmm. but technically most banks can do that. What, um, what, what I did they, I what kind of
0: loan to value do they give you on that or what kind of?
1: Yeah, 80%, 80% uh, loan to value. Okay. So yeah, you can take up to 80% usually. Um, so for example, if you, Took, like, if you have a house that's $100,000, for example, you took out 80% loan to value. That means um, you multiply 80% times 100,000. So that's 80,000. Let's say you have 50,000 left to pay on that loan um, uh, the, the, you know, the, the mortgage or whatever, uh, you take 80,000, subtract out that 50,000 and that leaves you with 30,000 that mm-hmm. you could take out. Yep, totally. So I was able to take out, uh, around a hundred thousand dollars because my property went up $130,000 Nice, um, since I purchased it. Yeah. <laughs> That's so, crazy. I did lose a lot of money on that property because I didn't do my due diligence. I had a sewage line issue and mm-hmm. all this, these problems. But then, you know, at the end of the day, it went up 130000 So I'm like, okay, you know, nice. this is fine.
0: <laughs> nice. Okay. So you, I, I understand how you're finding them generally. It sounds like you're using an agent and that's how it's mostly going. Are you paying? Mm-hmm. It sounds like you're paying. I know when this last one is off market, I get it, but it sounds like you're pl- paying close to retail for these houses. It's not like you're getting some 50% discount on the price because it's in, you know, a lot of investors, that's that's mm-hmm. their game. And most investors, right? you can't flip a house if you pay retail. So you pay exactly, 50% yeah. of what it, you know, the ARV and then you do the work and you add value. And of course it goes up, but you're paying mm-hmm. close to retail. It sounds like. I mainly focus on properties that are mostly turnkey and good condition.
1: If I were to buy like a fixer upper, there's a little bit, um, it's harder to get a little like lending on that. Plus I have to think about the opportunity costs because Mm -hmm. my properties are making such a large increase in rental income per month. Like. You know, thirty one hundred dollars per month. If I go six months renovating the property, yes, it'll go up in pro- value, but that's six times thirty one hundred dollars, eighteen thousand dollars that I'm missing out in rental income. So you have right. to think about the opportunity cost. Plus, I would be paying carrying costs and all that. How long does it so take for you? To- my method it makes more sense just to buy yeah. mostly turnkey.
0: Yeah, because I could just rent it out right away. Totally. How long does it take you to get it up and running after you close on a house? usually about two to three weeks to put in like
1: an extra bedroom or two. Um, It's, it's done by the end of the month for sure. Really? And then by next month, I usually have the tenants in because I start, advertising my properties right when my offer is accepted. So not even when I have the house, I basically sell the product before I even have it. Right. Yeah. Um, but that allows me to have at least a month or two or so to advertise and then just move everyone in either. Uh, you know, I get them in during the summer or I get them in starting fall, uh, whichever is closest.
0: So you just blew my mind. You're adding a bedroom or two. Let's just say you're adding one, because that's impressive enough. How how in the world you do two? I don't know. But you add one bedroom in a couple of weeks. Like, don't you need the city engineers to come out and like you have to draw a plan? Like, how do you how do you mobilize and get contractors and the city to sign off on it? Like, the city can take two weeks sometimes. Like. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? How do you get that yeah, done? Yeah.
1: So I make it very simple. I'll either take like an existing family room or bed or uh, living room or office space, and I'll just repurpose it as okay. a bedroom. That so you're not even building require.
0: on necessarily. You're, Sorry? Not, you're not building on then necessarily. Not necessarily.
1: Yeah. Sometimes there's already a bonus room there. I just repurpose it. Okay. That makes sense. I just change the doorway. Maybe it's a sliding door and I put in a normal door to the family room and I say, okay, this is a bedroom now, right? That
0: makes total Um, sense. The
1: other thing you could do is car, like... Um, cut a living room or large family room in half and half of it will be the living room and that the other half will be a bedroom. That's very simple. You know, all it requires is some drywall and a door. Yeah. $1,500 to maybe $2,500 job. And that can be done in a couple of
0: weeks. hundred percent. That makes total sense. I thought you were adding on. Like living space, new living space to the house. Oh man, no, that's expensive. Yeah, (laughs) you're not doing that. Two weeks
1: electricals, all that type of stuff. Yeah, no, this is just drywall and a door. Whenever I go, as simple as possible for
0: sure. Got you. Okay, because my next question is, what does it cost to add a room? But I I see what you're saying by add. You're you're repurposing existing living space to make it a bedroom. That makes that makes total sense. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Um. So. What is the plan here? How many do you have now? Let's give people a sense. How many many, uh, total properties do you have? Yeah, so at the
1: end of this month, I'll actually be closing on my fifth property that's going to be making $3440 in rental income because I'm getting a couple in there. Um, After all said and done, I would be making $13,910. I actually have all my rooms except for two occupied right now because there's just so much demand for this type of market again, you're paying like half the price of on-campus housing and on-campus housing is like $1,200 or so. And you have to bunk with your bunkmate and you have to buy a meal plan. So a meal plan is basically like you have to um, purchase food from the university. And of course, university charges premium pricing for most of their lunch food, right? Yeah. Uh, So this gives them more privacy. They're just as close to their classes or sometimes even closer. um, And they're paying half the price of the dorm
0: do you ever so, double up in rooms? Do you ever have two people in one room? Do you, have they ever request it? Yes, I do. And you do want to check
1: with your city for this type of model as well, because for me, as long as I had a business license with the city and paid the city tax, I'm able to actually do multiple leases, uh, multiple unrelated family members or you know, unrelated individuals per bedroom. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I'll get like a couple into a bedroom and I'll charge like about 30% to maybe 50% more and uh, rental income for that bedroom if they, you know, share it. Yeah. So whenever I can do that, I I try to do that.
0: Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, Yeah, because I would assume some people might even request it and say, hey, we don't care. Mm -hmm. It's a big enough room. Let's just rent. And so you also mentioned leases. Everybody has their own lease, obviously, because it's all independently rented. How do you handle things like utilities and stuff like that?
1: Yeah, so one way you can do it is actually have one tenant collect, have the utilities under their name, and then what they do is pay the utility bills and they charge back to other tenants. That's the best way, honestly, because it makes everything automated. You don't have to worry about utilities, period, right? As long as they're paying the bill, they're charging back to other tenants, you're fine. Um, and obviously if they just stop paying, then the, they're going to have the power shut off on them or their internet's not going to yeah. be shut off or whatever. So yeah. they're going to be paying their utilities. But another way you can do it is, of course, put it under your name and then just split it evenly between all the tenants there mm-hmm. and then keep track of that on an Excel sheet or something like that. I know there's definitely apps out there. You can also use like Tenant Cloud or whatever. Yeah. To keep track. Um, but I just do it on Excel if, I, if
0: okay. I have to do that. And how much infighting do you get where people like, don't they don't know each other necessarily, like where they're like this guy's a jerk or this person's a slob like how do you handle that or do you get it? Is, exactly. that, is that a big thing i know you said you're dealing with professionals so maybe it's not mm-hmm. like so bad because you're not dealing with a bunch of like freshmen you know that don't know anything so um mm-hmm. does it come up a lot is that is it you know like just having trouble getting along you're putting strangers in a house together Yeah. So the
1: last two years, I actually had 18 tenants. um, And I would say maximum number of times I get like an infighting is once per year. And so when this occurs, I'll empower, it's all about empowering the tenant. So what I say is, you know, you're an adult now, um, basically you're an adult now, uh, go ahead and talk one-on-one with the guy you're unhappy about, state why you're unhappy, um, come up with a plan together, an actionable plan, and then implement that plan. If you're still struggling and, you know, unhappy about your tenant after that, then you can come to me and then I can have a talk with them. Okay. Um, usually it doesn't come to that point because after I say that, it's, it's resolved somehow. I don't know how yeah. either they learn to tolerate their behavior yeah. or they had the talk and then the other guy changed his behavior. Yeah. One of those. And, it,
0: and it goes back to getting the right tenants too, right? Like I think yes. that probably solves a lot of this is you're just getting the right kind of people in, into the, the thing. So a couple other, exactly. these are, these are maybe stupid. Well, the first one isn't stupid. What do you do about like female male ratios or like, would you ever put one female with, you know, five male, like, is that, other how do you hand, how do you handle that i definitely try to match them up whenever possible
1: um a lot of my houses are pretty close together so they don't mind being in either house so if there is a house where the other females prefer to live uh, with other females a lot of times it's due to like their culture for example they can only live with other females mm-hmm. until they're mm-hmm. married or whatever yep. um and so in that case i'll have like yeah a female house and then a male house uh, but sometimes i do do co-ed as long as mm-hmm. the females are comfortable staying with uh, other males yeah now you have to be careful here there's a fine line like you can't say in your ad this is an all female house because that's discriminating against sex mm-hmm. but if the tenant that already signed the lease or is already you know going to be living in that space prefers to only stay with other females you have to kind of respect sure. that yeah. request totally. right so that's not you discriminating that's you know their culture or them kind of preferring a certain sex.
0: All right. So here's my stupid, now my stupid question. Uh, (laughs) How do you handle the refrigerator? I assume there's one refrigerator in these houses. Like, is that an issue for uh, this many people in one house? No, I haven't had any complaints about that You just tell them um, to figure it out. I as like know my
1: friend had that problem before and she just got her own mini fridge. Okay. Uh, but I usually have a pretty large refrigerator. I provide that. Yeah. Um, I haven't had complaints about that, but that is a good question. Um, no one's... I, know, I guess they just figure it out. Well, somehow. it's
0: only a good question if it happens. It doesn't happen to you. So it's a, it's a moot point, right? Yeah. Do you provide a washer and dryer? Is that in the house? hmm yeah. yeah. Washer and dryer
1: included. Okay. But pretty much all amenities are included. I do provide like oven, microwave, fridge, um, any other appliances you can think of. Uh, usually a dishwasher.
0: Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, what else? What don't we know? What is critical? If someone says, you know what? I love this. I love what Ryan's doing. I want to do this in my town. This is going to be awesome is there any other advice that we haven't really covered that you know is like pretty critical like they need to know this and this is like look out for this or any any other advice for this kind of investing
1: mm, i would say uh just follow your local city laws definitely check with your city planning division i think i mentioned um to make sure that this is legal in your area and then also kind of you know. Get to know your neighbors as well. Um, you can kind of make sure that they're okay with it as well. And then also, if you if you need like contractors in the area or something like that, the neighbor could help. Uh, provide that advice. So I I just recommend always kind of like expanding your network. And then whenever someone contacts you, like a student contacts you, ask them the question uh, along the lines of expanding your network, ask them, do they have any friends that are interested in staying as well? Because every person who contacts you could have three or four people, other people interested, or they're like, oh, you know what? Uh, That's a good question. I'll I'll go ahead and ask some of my friends, right? And so if I can get like, a group of four people in it, it's very easy to occupy the house very quickly. Sure. So, Absolutely. Yeah.
0: So where, where do you see yourself going forward five years from now? What is, what is your real estate portfolio, portfolio look like? So I'm planning to actually retire by 31. I'm going to be
1: paying off the second and third house likely uh, by just reinvesting my cash flow and then my W-2 income. And then at that point, I'll be able to have around $7,500 in rental income. That's about $5,000 to $6,000 in cash flow, about $6,000 in cash flow, actually. And so that's enough for me to just kind of retire early and then figure out where to go from there. Um, I always wanted to have that choice to either like work as a pharmacist full-time or maybe just work part-time like one or two days a week and then spend mm-hmm. the rest of the time making a larger impact on the world or the impact that I see myself making. Maybe just like a new journey that I want to pursue, right? Yeah. So at that point, I'll I'll kind of decide, you know, nice. where am I going to go from there, right? I so love it. it's, it's exciting for sure. I love um, it. Achieving I, that financial freedom, at least that first level.
0: 100%. I, I also think there's probably a spreadsheet in, in, in your world that's giving you some there's a plan on a spreadsheet because i love when you say things like i want to retire at age 31 it's not age 30 it's 31 which <laughs> it's which 31. which means you have worked the math out you know when it makes sense to do it so and that's yes, perfect everyone 30. should do that i mean i'm i'm joking but i honestly i think people go i don't know retire by 30 it's like well how are you gonna do it what's your plan I don't know. I'm just gonna really work my butt off. It's like, no, that's not a plan. That's just like a hope, a dream. Like you have a plan. Yeah. It sounds like so, man. That's awesome. Okay, you got to break down the numbers. Totally, totally. You have to break down the numbers. Um, listen, it's been a blast having you on. I appreciate you doing this. I really do. A uh, lot of fun. Kind of a different way of going about this whole rental game. Uh, a lot of people talk about rentals and they want to build a rental portfolio, but why not rent them out a room at a time and and just you know one rental that that might otherwise make twelve hundred dollars can make thirty two hundred dollars or you know twenty seven hundred dollars like you can just make so much more doing it this way and uh it doesn't have to be crazy hard you're working full-time and, and you're managing these rentals and you're making a great cash mm-hmm. flow and you're doing it while holding down your 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 day job right so it yeah. can definitely be done so time is not an excuse guys uh so just get out there and get going for it so and you and you bought these with mortgages it sounds like or some of them at least in the beginning you you just leverage your w your mm-hmm. w2 which most people have and most people can do all also, you know, there's so many ways that you can make it happen if you really want it to happen. Uh, people blame time and money, and really, those two things are not not the problem. It's something going on mentally that, that's stopping them. So, exactly, it's the mindset
1: for sure, hundred percent. And I think it's it's. It's a great way to get started for a lot of people who are working on W2Job. Just slowly build your portfolio on the side while you have access to that conventional financing. Honestly, conventional financing is one of the, the best types of financing out there. You're getting interest rates of like 3%, less yeah. than 4%, right, nowadays yeah. especially. And so that's way better than what people who do like self-employed, you know, self-employed people. Uh, can achieve, right? Or people with large real estate portfolios. It's much harder to get that type of lending.
0: Totally. 100%. You should always leverage that while you can because that's the thing. People go, I'm just going to quit my job and start. It's like, wait, that, that job can actually help you maybe if you're depending on the type of investing you want to do. And that's exactly how. That's so right. man, thanks for the advice. I think it's uh what you're doing is really, really cool. And the great thing is a- anyone can do it, right? Anyone can do it. It's just, it's, it's just going out there and making it happen. So thanks again, Ryan, for doing this. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your knowledge. And uh, I wish you nothing but success in the future.
1: If you guys wanted to uh, reach me, uh, I could provide my uh, website. It's uh, www.newberealestateinvesting.com. Uh, that's www.newberealestateinvesting.com, and it's newbie is spelled N-E-W-B-I-E. And I uh, provide a free PDF for anyone interested in really getting started in the student housing market, um, or just you know ask your
0: questions, um, and then I can answer them. Love it. Thanks, man. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. All right. How about that? A new way to do rentals with just crazy high revenue. I mean, the cash flow is a lot higher. My concern, like I stated, would have been the craziness that would ensue when you throw a bunch of college kids in a house that don't know each other potentially. Um, But I get it. He's, you know, The main key here, I think, is getting in front of the right people and making sure that the people, the college kids that you're putting in there are the right college kids so that you don't have all these problems. So that really is the same philosophy in a normal rental. You want to rent to the highest caliber, highest quality, A person that you possibly can to avoid all the crazy drama that sometimes happens in rentals. It doesn't change when it's a college situation. So uh, I really enjoyed that. It's a cool model. It's a lot of fun. And honestly, he doesn't have to have 20 rentals to have the same cash flow in his like four or five. Like he's buying his fifth one now, and he's gonna have like 13 over $13,000 in in that uh, rental revenue. So. Uh, it just shows you there's, there's a lot of ways you can do this, guys. And it all can be done while you're working at W2. If you have that day job, you can do it while you're working. There's no excuse. We said it at the end. Time and money. Number one excuses are time and money or one and two, however you want to look at it. And they're both kind of baloney. Like You, you can still do this. You don't have to blame time and money. Uh, so get out there and make it happen, guys. That's just uh, the bottom line. You hear in a podcast like this, it inspires you. It doesn't matter unless you go out there and take action. So go after it, go take action, make it happen. We'll see you next time.